Right, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 1. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. It is for oxen that God is, is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake, because the plowman should plow in hope, and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Amen. Now, 1 Corinthians chapters 8, 9, and 10, which is our modest series this year. We look at it on Sundays. We look at it in small groups. It's concerned with how we use our freedoms wisely and in a loving way. What are our freedoms? Well, it's stuff that we can do as Christians. The Bible doesn't say you shouldn't do it. And oftentimes the Bible says, well, you are free to do these things. And we, we, we learn what our freedoms are just as we acquire knowledge as Christians. And the purpose of these chapters is to caution us against using our freedoms without thinking. Without thinking in a loving way about other people. Last week in chapter 8, we looked at the whole issue of not using our freedoms or laying them aside or saying, I'm not going to do that even though I'm free to do it, because if I do it, it's going to cause a vulnerable Christian, somebody who's perhaps a new Christian, someone whose conscience is weaker, who has less knowledge or maturity than me, it's going to cause them to trip up and stumble. So we used uh, lots of examples. One example was uh, going out with your Christian friends and your non-Christian friends um, to a, a restaurant or to a pub or to a cafe, whatever, and to, to have a drink. That is, um, I think, biblically within the realm of Christian freedom, something that Christians are free to do. And it might well be something that evangelistically it's wise to do, sensible to do. But why might you not do it? 
for example, somebody who's become a Christian recently in your group of friends, going to that kind of environment for them in the past was a really problematic thing. And their Christian conversion has kind of rescued them out of an environment where, where they were unable to draw a line. So don't take them back. Don't take them back and cause them to slip back. That's the kind of realm of chapter uh, 8. And lots of other applications. You can hear them online in the sermons and uh, also in your small group uh, studies. Here uh, in chapter 9, Paul is expanding to a much bigger principle. It's not about causing a, a, another Christian who's perhaps weak in their conscience or lacks the knowledge that you have to stumble. It's about doing nothing that causes the gospel of Christ to be uh, blocked from going forward. Now, if you look at the back of the service sheet, you'll see uh, some headings, a principle, some applications, and some reflections. Let's work through uh, these in turn. Now, to get the principle, we start with a presenting issue. So what's the particular outworking of the principle in the Corinthian church or in the context uh, then? The presenting issue is that as an apostle, Paul has the right to be supported financially by the church in uh, Corinth. Now, here's his argument. In verses 1 to 3, he gives the evidence that he is an apostle. He has seen Jesus and been commissioned personally by Jesus to be an apostle. Moreover, uh, the Corinthians are Paul's workmanship. God had used Paul to establish that Christian church. And so he says, you Corinthian church are the seal of my apostleship. So he is an apostle. What are his rights? Verses 4 to 6, to eat, to drink, to be married, and to be supported financially so that he doesn't need to do another job to earn a living. Verse 7, he appeals to human reason, who serves as a soldier as at own expense. That's just inefficient and unjust. You wouldn't expect a serving soldier to have to do a job to support them as a soldier, unless, well, now we have, someone pointed out to me in service one, we have, uh, I don't know what they're called, people who, that's, you know, I, just ignore what I'm just saying. Yeah, the point's pretty obvious, I think, yeah? Or the other examples, who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? It's just daft if someone plants a vineyard not to let them eat any of the fruit. Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? It's just a natural, common-sense, justice-sufficiency argument. But then he moves on in verses 8 to 12a to biblical arguments that Paul has the right to be paid as an apostle. Verse 8, do I say these things on human authority? In other words, am I only arguing on the basis of human reason? Does not the law God's word say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. And if an ox is breaking up the grain by walking on it, you know, walking round in circles uh, like in a mill, don't muzzle the ox, don't, uh, don't stop it from eating some of the grain. Uh, if you let the ox eat some of the grain, it's going to tread for longer. It's just common sense. And then uh, Paul makes the point that God is not talking in these verses 
that he quotes about animal welfare, important as that is, he is making a point about supporting those who proclaim the gospel. So verse 10, does he not speak entirely for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, which they did in Corinth, they taught the Bible, they shared the gospel, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even uh, more? Now, Paul's argument is clear, it is strong, it is biblical. As an apostle, he has the right to be supported financially by the church in Corinth. Now, here's the point or the punchline or Paul's purpose in writing this. Chapter 9, verse 12b, nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Paul had the right to be supported financially by the church in Corinth, but he will not exercise that right. In fact, he will lay aside that right because to take up that right, he would be putting an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Now, why on earth would that put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ? After all, he is, uh, it's, it's right that he is supported financially, and, but he's saying no to this church. What's going on in that church that made him uh, do that? After all, he had taken uh, money from other churches like Philippi. It, it was normal for him to do that. Why not here in Corinth? Well, let me read to you from... Uh, the second letter, don't turn it up, I'll just read a few verses when we know the reason why. Paul writes, did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? When I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone, for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. And why? Why did I not take money from you? And then he asks a question, because I do not love you? Perhaps someone was saying that was why. And then emphatically he says, God knows I love you. It's because I love you that I haven't exercised this right among you. Not because they had no money. They had lots of money. One of the big problems in the church in Corinth were leaders who set themselves up as false apostles, sometimes called super apostles. Paul wants to be seen to be different from them. These super apostles had a different message. They were much more popular. Their message was easier. It was more acceptable. And Paul wants to be seen to be different from them. And either because, we don't know exactly, but either because the ministry or leadership of these other would-be apostles was all about material prosperity 
or because they were accusing Paul of only being in it for the money, Paul set aside his right out of love for the Corinthian church. Now, how is that loving? Well, Paul did it because he wanted his setting aside of that right to make them realize that all that Paul was concerned about was that they heard the real and the true gospel. And if taking no money and working all night and doing this job and the other to support himself as he did, he would do it a thousand times over. Because he felt that if he had taken up his right, it would have been a stumbling block to the gospel. Now, that's what's going on in uh, Corinth. Now, we've got to pick the principle out and not the presenting uh, issue. The principle here is a willingness to lay down our freedoms or rights for the sake of the gospel, or not to use our freedoms or rights if that puts an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Now, that's the principle, but let's press pause. Is there any difference between freedoms and rights? Now, Paul has a right to be supported in his gospel work. Is that exactly the same as Christian freedoms to eat food sacrificed to idols? That's the example in, in chapter 8 and all the other examples we gave that you can get on, on, online. They're not entirely the same, but what Paul says about this right here in chapter 9, he, he focuses on the right in order to, to make his point about Christians setting aside their freedoms even more emphatic. If he's willing to set aside a right, his, the just and, and sensible and, and biblical argument that he should be supported financially in his ministry, if he's willing to set aside his right, and he wants us to be willing to set aside our freedoms for the sake of the gospel. Now, the particular freedom or right here in chapter 9, the particular freedom or right in chapter 8, we've got to expand on that to all the different freedoms and rights that we have as Christians. And in your small groups, you're looking at a whole range of examples. And we'll come back to a number of examples later this morning. Let me just underscore this, though. Freedoms are freedoms, and we are free to do them, absolutely. And we will see next week, for example, that using our freedoms can be a way of reaching people who aren't Christians, doing things that we are free to do that we might not naturally be inclined to want to do are often good ways of breaking down cultural barriers with people and sharing our faith. Freedoms are freedoms. But here in chapter 9, part 1, Paul's point is absolutely you're free to do these things. You're right in your knowledge, but don't stand on your freedoms. Don't be dogmatic about saying, I am free to do this. If doing something that you are free to do would put an obstacle in the way 
of the gospel. And that is the selfless, sacrificial attitude of love that Paul wants to impress on the church in Corinth and on us. It is the way of Jesus we are to imitate. Now, what does Paul mean by the gospel of Christ? He says, don't put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. It's one thing to think about, don't put an obstacle in the way of my fellow Christian who is vulnerable or whose conscience is weak. But the gospel of Christ is kind of wide in its scope, and so it is. It is wide in its scope. We might think of it this way. Don't put an obstacle in the way of the progress of the gospel. Don't put an obstacle in the way of the progress of evangelism in a church. Don't put an obstacle in the way of the progress of evangelism through a CU, for example. Don't put an obstacle in the way of my local church growing and discipling people. Don't put an obstacle in the way of my own service, my own uh, service of the Lord Jesus. Now, let's build some applications. It's good to get to applications early uh, in the talk. And what I'd like to suggest is three contexts for applications, and I hope that will be helpful. I'd like us to think corporately as a church, um, Chalmers and Redeemer, and then corporately as small groups. And uh, those of you who are students, you might think of how we think corporately as a, as a CU, for example, on campus. And then we'll get on to individually as Christians, how should we be uh, thinking? Now, these are only some uh, applications, and our small groups is where uh, we uh, wrestle down these into the practicalities of our uh, actual lives. Now, first, corporately as a church, Chalmers or Redeemer, it is helpful, I think, for us to, to talk about a corporate mindset as a church or a kind of corporate way of thinking as a church. We're very quick to, to, to default to individualism as Christians. But how do we think as a church? Now, of course, as individuals in a church family, each of us impacts the family dynamic. Every member of the family has influence. And you know that from your own families. A me-centered attitude impacts the family dynamic negatively. A selfless or sacrificial cross-centered attitude impacts the family uh, positively. We all have an impact on the family dynamic in a church. But nonetheless, it is helpful to consider for a moment how we think and what we do corporately as a church as a consequence of how we think. Now, here are some freedoms for us as a church. So when Redeemer starts, and this discussion might go on after church, and whether after the first service or the second, whatever. When Redeemer starts, might it be possible for us to all come back together in one great big morning service where the room is full and where we will enjoy being all together and the singing 
will be brilliant. Just to say your singing is great at the moment. But you know what I mean. And there's a bit, there's a bit in me by about this time on a Sunday that, that you kind of flag. And it might mean that the guys don't have to turn up for band practice at 8 a.m. Or 7.30 to open the building up. And now, this is all within the realm of Christian freedoms. You're not going to find anywhere in the Bible that gives you chapter and verse you've got to meet at half nine or half eleven. Sometimes we might like to think it does to justify our preferences, but there's nothing about that in the Bible. It's an area of Christian freedom. So it's perfectly within our freedoms to think Redeemer has gone, let's come back for one service. That's a sensible decision. Now the questions we should be asking are not, would I like that? Or would I not like that? But will doing that put an obstacle in the way of the church growing as a loving community? Or will it help with that? Or will it put an obstacle in the way of unbelievers coming to faith? In the past, we've always felt that a church that's jam-packed full is, is tough for people to come into who aren't Christians. Now, I'm not going to answer these questions for us. We will. There are answers. We need to find the answers. What Corinthians 8 to 10 does is makes us ask these questions. Here's another corporate uh, application. Chalmers has planted a church. We're stretched in terms of gospel partners. It, it'll be hard for us to, to, to accommodate more gospel partners now, we could build big numbers of partners, but you can't care for people if there are too many. We're stretched in terms of people training. Now, it is largely a matter of Christian freedom, what we do as a church in the next 10 years. Now, to some extent, of course, and to a large extent, it's not. We've got to reach and to build and to train and to send. That's not a matter of freedom. But how much we will commit to that in terms of zeal and vision and energy and material resources and hard cash is to a large extent within the realm of our freedoms. Think of money, for example. It is within the realm of our freedoms beyond giving sacrificially to do what we want wisely with our money. It really is. And let me underscore that freedoms are freedoms. But what do we do in the next 10 years? What are we willing, if so called, to set aside in the realm of freedoms so as we're not putting corporately an obstacle in the way of the gospel? So people will often say to me at the moment, we're planting Redeemer, are we going to plant another church? And once they pick me up off the floor, dust me down, my answer is, I don't know. Here's what might happen, though. A group of people find that they are living in a certain part of the city, and there is no gospel church. 
And somebody comes along with a vision to lead that church, perhaps from another church. And there's a natural opportunity to plant another church. I wouldn't expect it to happen in one year or two years or three years because, you know, God works in a sensible way as he replenishes a church and, and builds it up again. But if it did happen, would we dig our heels in and say, we are free not to do that? Or would we set aside these freedoms and do it? That's the kind of question. That's the kind of mindset 1 Corinthians 8 to 10 is asking. Now, what about in our small groups? Let me give you a very practical example. I love my small group. Okay, I'm not in one. I'd like to be. Maybe I should be. But this is you. I love my small group. I love it because... These people know me really well, and they know what questions to ask. They know about my life. They pray for me, and I know that what I'm facing in that week, they are praying. That's true, and that's good. That's good. There's no trick up my sleeve here. That's exactly what we want in a small group. But what happens if the church, as we pray, it will, that the empty seats will fill up with people who aren't Christians and who may not be like us? What will the attitude corporately of my small group be? Will it be, oh, I understand we've got to get these people in, but I just really love it the way it is. Now, I think our default, even as strong Christians, is, is, is to our, our sort of preferences and likes. It just is. It's the way I, I, um, I am. It's the way you are. And what Corinthians 8 to 10 is saying, Luke, would you be prepared in your small group to set aside your freedom? I mean, there's nothing in the Bible about telling you which people exactly should be in it. Are you prepared to set aside your freedom to be with the people you really like and get on with in order to have others in the context of your group. That's exactly what 1 Corinthians 8 to 10 is saying. That's not easy for any of us. What uh, churches often do is they change their small groups every three years. That's a, well, there's wisdom in that. What's a much, much better thing to do is to have a a Christ-like culture within people's hearts that changes from the inside out without having to do it on a spreadsheet. Now let's get on to individually as Christians. Now individually as Christians might mean a couple, they might mean a family, they might just mean me. The right question to ask in life is using my freedoms, putting a stumbling block in the way of the gospel. One aspect of that I've shown is the impact we have as individuals on our small groups, and in the church family. But what about other? Here are some, and, and uh, these are all things people are discussing in their groups. They're all real examples. Now, when you hear them, to me, they sound really provocative. That's just a warning. I think they sound provocative, at least to me, because I'm just not sure we're wired into thinking in this way. I'm not sure we're hardwired into thinking selflessly, and for others. So here's some in relation to work, or for those of you who are uh, students, 
future work. How might the free decisions I have about work impact the gospel of Christ? So, let me give you some specific questions. How will taking this job impact the contact and conversations I have with people about Jesus? So, here's a really practical illustration of that. A young person who is coming to the end of their degree is offered three jobs. You might think that's the realm of the new creation. <laughs> it has actually happened. This is, they're all real examples. Someone has been offered three jobs in three legal firms. Traineeships. How do you decide? It's hugely encouraging to hear him say to me, should I be thinking about which one on the basis of which one has the least number of Christians in it? That's a great way to think. Now, don't, don't kind of fall into a kind of otherworldly, uh, kind of so heavenly-minded, we're not in the real world mentality here. There are lots of factors in taking a job. And sometimes they are material factors, because you need security and you need, if you're married or whatever, you need to, or you need to pay off a student loan. There's all sorts of, it's not in the Bible, but there's all sorts of sensible ways to approach these. But you've got to ask the question, what's the spiritual reason for me doing that? That job, not that job. And I think if you make the wrong decision, intentionally and knowingly, you exclude the spiritual part, that's putting a stumbling block in the way of the gospel. Okay, um, I'm wanting to move jobs, which I am perfectly free to do. What are the gospel implications of uh, moving? So what about, say you are in a job that is maybe not the ideal job, but you've got lots of opportunities to, uh, just to say that when I worked for 10 or 12 years before I became a minister, and I'm still in a real job now, just so you know, I don't think I ever thought like this. What will the impact of me leaving that job be in relation to the gospel conversations and relationships I have begun to establish? That's just a way of thinking. Or going to take that job, what are the spiritual reasons behind that decision? Well, here's one that a number of people are talking about and asking me for advice on, and I've not yet given any. Um, I think the Bible is the best advice. What will I do for the gospel with the huge freedom that my retirement gives me? That's a great question. What should I do for the gospel with the freedom that my retirement gives me? So say somebody comes to me and they say, look, I'm at a stage of life where financially I can go down and do a couple of days a week less, and can you uh, suggest to me how I might use these days 
for the sake of the gospel. That happens, and that's a great conversation uh, to have. That does happen, and it happens often in a church like Chalmers. But that's a Corinthian, that's what Paul is teaching, and that's the mindset he wants. What we need to guard against is not allowing these spiritual aspects to enter into our thinking at all. What will I do for the gospel with the freedom my retirement gives me? Or what about where you live? What are the gospel reasons for moving to live there? So, um, think of those of you who are young here, think about uh, down the track, or those of you perhaps on the cusp of this decision or even in the middle of it, suddenly the, the dream house appears. Should you stretch yourself to the limit to buy it? Maybe. There are loads of people who have expensive houses who use these houses liberally for the sake of the gospel. There are loads of people who have second homes. The people who are serving the gospel abroad come and live in and are blessed by But will using my freedoms to buy that dream home, if it's going to stretch me to the absolute limit of my finances, how will I be able to give for the work of the gospel? That's the kind of spiritual Corinthian way of thinking that Paul wants that in his letter to get that into our mind. What will the impact of my moving to that house be? So, okay, I can get my dream house, but I can get it 60 miles away for half the price. That's where I'm going to go. And, and you've got uh, uh, two primary school-aged children. What about church for them? What's the church like? That might, of course, be wise for you to use your freedoms to go there. But the point is, ask these questions. What about relationships? And these are, these are complex and, and, and sensitive. Am I free to marry as a Christian? Yes. Here's a question that Jen uh, Margitz once asked me to ask her, which is a bit strange when she was a single woman working out in um, Cameroon. She asked me to ask her every time we had a conversation by Skype or whatever, Jen, would you be willing never to be married for the sake of the gospel? In her culture working in the Cameroon, that was a real possibility. Now, I use that as a real example because it's real. Now, none of these issues are simple. And my intention is not to throw out questions in a simplistic way. I've tried really carefully not to use any questions or illustrations that people are not speaking to me about now or in the past. And if the questions have an edge to them, 
It is perhaps to help us to think with a gospel mindset. To think in a way that the Corinthians just were a hundred miles from. To think not in a me-centered way. Not in a self-centered way. But in a selfless, sacrificial, loving way that asks questions like, will doing this bring glory to God? Will using this freedom cause a young, vulnerable Christian to stumble? I'll not do it then. Will using this freedom put a stumbling block in the way of the gospel? And that mindset when it runs through a church, that mindset when it runs through a Christian union or a, a small group is just so powerful and so transforming and so helpful. But they're not simple questions that have simple, neat answers. They need to be wrestled through and prayed through with loving Christians who will stand with you. Now, as we come to the end, so final reflections. Number one, humility. Please be careful not to fall into the trap of judging others. Don't fall into the trap of saying, I think they are not using their freedoms wisely. I expect that most of us, if not all of us as Christians, will find Paul's teaching an example uh, humbling. To be humbled by God's Word is an appropriate uh, reaction. Just at the end of the section, Paul uh, says, be imitators of me as I am of Jesus. So, so don't... Don't fall into the trap of judging others. In fact, don't fall into the trap of listening to anyone other than the Lord Jesus. It's his example. And he lives within you. Number two, don't look back. This is to the oldies in the room, of whom there are not a few. And I'm one of them. I have more back than front. Don't look back and say, I wish I had done different. That's the devil's trick. Don't do that. Don't let guilt rob you. Third, look forward. As individuals, couples, families, small groups, and as a church, the way we think from now on, the way we think from now on will affect what we do from now on. Those of you here who are young, may good, I wish, I, wi I do wish, I wish that, I wish that someone had sat down with me as a young Christian and said a lot of stuff to me that you find out later in life. Establish patterns early in your life 
Think biblically. Early doors in your life. And you will make decisions again and again that remove stumbling blocks, remove obstacles, or don't put obstacles in the way of the gospel. And fourthly is urgency. One of the dangers that I felt with this motto series is that we'd end up in our small groups having endless discussions about endless things and not coming to a conclusion on anything. But that is precisely not what has happened. There's none of that going on. People are really wrestling with complex, practical issues, but they're wrestling to understand the principles. And I think it will be and is proving to be wonderfully transforming if our corporate mind as a church starts thinking like this. And if our corporate heart as a church starts loving other people like this, and the preferences that dominate our lives are replaced by principles that ensure the gospel advances. Urgency, because the need in the UK is enormous spiritually now, and the world still. And so the, the, the question or the call or the encouragement not to hinder the gospel, not to stand on our rights and freedoms for the sake of the gospel, has never been for generations heard more urgently than now so that we ensure that there is a gospel that is guarded for the next generation. And as we start thinking this way, and as we start not using our freedoms, and as we get onto it next week, using our freedoms to bridge cultural barriers, doing stuff that perhaps we're inclined not to do, even though we're free to do it, doing these things to bridge the distance between us and people who aren't Christians, we will find that God is at work in their lives and will lead them to faith in Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this very practical and powerful teaching in these chapters about giving up our freedoms of so-called for the sake of the progress of the gospel and for others. Help us, Lord, individually and corporately to be cross-shaped Christians, selfless, sacrificial, loving, kind, gentle, and gracious. Help us, Lord, to be humble as we hear and humble as we respond, to be imitators of Paul and to be imitators of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that the Spirit of the living Christ is within us, enabling us so to live. For his sake we pray.